Holy Lord, you are our deliverer. You are our source of life. You are our king. And in these truths and our devotion to you, we find peace and endurance. In Christ, we are able to rejoice in thanksgiving and in trial. In Christ, we are able to have sincere love and resist the chaos of the world. Encourage our hearts and minds today as we hear your word. Encourage us to increase our devotion to you no matter our circumstance. You are faithful, and you have proven yourself time after time. May we repent when we fall to impatience, to temptation, to apathy. Now is the time to stand firm in the faith you called us into. As we are surrounded by chaos, and the world only adds to it. The kingdom of darkness is at the root of the false gods that this world worships. It is a kingdom that seeks to destroy what God has created. Now is the time to declare who the true and living God is, to declare Jesus, the Christ, is Lord. No matter the adversity we face, nothing can destroy the love of Christ. Nothing will prevail against the Almighty Lord. In this, we are secure. In this, we continue to die to ourselves and live for our God. Praise be to our Deliverer, our life, and our King. Amen. Amen. Why don't you have a seat? Thank you, Patrick. You can open up to Daniel chapter 2. We're on our second week of covering this chapter, and and so uh, last week we looked at the bold point of Daniel chapter 2. This week what we're going to do is we're going to apply the text a bit more, and so there's going to be a lot more application points than last week. So if you walked away from last week thinking, man, that was great theology, but what do I do with it? Uh, This week will help you out. How many times in 2020 did you find yourself in stunned silence? Maybe you even think that about 2021. Found yourself in stunned silence. Moments where, based on news that just arrived to your eyes or ears, uh, your brain kind of short-circuited and the thought crossed your mind, what do I do now? That happened to anybody? Yeah? 2020 was a year in which many of us felt stunned, like a deer caught in the headlights of an oncoming car, not sure what we are supposed to do and how we're supposed to feel. Personally, I, find my, I found myself in those moments often, and usually that stunned feeling was broken only by a lament or a cry to God asking, what do I do? How should I feel? Help me, Lord. And as Christians, we look to the Bible for answers to those questions. But then is it as simple as looking to the Bible and trying to emulate the characters in it? After all, how many of us were taught early in our walk with Christ that we should just look at the Bible and be like David or be like Moses or be like Samson or be like Solomon? But as we read through the word, we realize that most of these stories are actually illustrations not of character that we should emulate, but of sinfulness and pride. And what they proclaim to us is our need for a Savior who will redeem us. And that Savior is the one that we can emulate, or at least work towards emulating. Because even then, when we think about emulating Christ, I don't know about you guys, but I think about what a big gap that is. It makes the Grand Canyon look like a small ditch to emulate Christ. Because many of us might think, well, that's Jesus. He's the Messiah. And so we strive to emulate him by the power of the Spirit, but then we fall short. So I'm thankful for stories like the one we have before us in Daniel, stories of model disciples. These are the people in the Old Testament, like Joseph, for example, or Daniel, that are offered to us with a bit of a sheen of perfection, if you will. Not that the word says they were perfect, because no one is perfect but Christ, but we only ever get to see the stories that show their wise choices and their action. In doing so, they give us a foretaste of Jesus in their trust of the Father and their willingness to serve him. And so we come to Daniel with a need to see what he did, how he handled the chaos around him. And he and his four companions become for us a model from whom we can glean some direction. I think we all need that right now. What does God want us to do? How should we act in exile when things seem bleak? And so what I want to do today is I want to provide some answers to that question. 
We have to begin, though, with a refresher from last week. There, we looked in-depth at the vision that Daniel had that gave an interpretation to King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we saw that the main point that comes across in this chapter that jumps out at us is that God is sovereign. Sovereign means that he possesses supreme power over the cosmos. And so he is in control despite what present conditions might lead us to believe. He is in control despite what present conditions might lead us to believe. And out of that, what we know is that history is heading to a known end where every knee will bow to the sovereignty of God. And this does not mean that God is the cause behind each and every activity in the physical realm, because there are other agents at work, such as the rebellious spiritual beings, adversaries of God, as well as our own free will. But this does not negate the fact that God ultimately is the supreme power and will work all things together so that the cosmos will eventually be restored to wholeness. You might think, Hans, that doesn't make sense, and I would say, amen, I know. But remember, he's God. He has the power to be able to do that. And this truth should give us great trust and hope, peace and clarity. And we see that it did the same for Daniel. That's why we entitled last week's sermon and this week's sermon, the first and second parts of the same idea, that the sovereignty of God brings clarity amidst the chaos. The sovereignty of God brings clarity amidst the chaos. Last week, we were given the truth of God's sovereignty despite present circumstances, that even though these kingdoms and nations of the world would strive against God and strive for their own power, eventually God would destroy those earthly nations and fill the entire world with his kingdom. And this week, we get to see Daniel's steady response because of his knowledge of this foundational truth. In other words, he acts out of that theology. So let's join the story in verse 11 after King Nebuchadnezzar has threatened to kill all his wise men unless they give him the content and interpretation of the dream. So let's go ahead and look at Daniel 2, 11, and we're going to read through verse 30. The wise men tell the king, the thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And then Daniel replied, with prudence and discretion, to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? In other words, why do you need to kill me right now? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house, made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and his companions, and he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. And have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to, the, to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in the bed came thoughts of what would be after this, 
and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So let's take a moment and observe Daniel's response as he encounters the harsh reality of chaos in the midst of exile. The first thing that we can see that scripture takes note of is this. You can write this down if you're taking notes. Daniel replied to disturbing news with prudence and discretion. Daniel replied to disturbing news with prudence and discretion. As with much of what has happened in 2020 and 2021, you can imagine Daniel sitting there scrolling through his phone and seeing news of what was going on in the kingdom. I don't know if it was a social media feed or just a news site he liked, but it made him pause and ask the question, wait a minute, am I going to be okay or is this going to be death? Does this mean me? And folks, not to downplay all that has happened in 2020, but for him, this was certain death. Not just a possibility at a small percentage, this was certain death. And even then, it says, they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. They were at his door. The implication is that Arioch and the soldiers were at the door with swords in hand, ready to kill them. And yet, in verse 14, Daniel responds with prudence and discretion. If this book were named after me, if this was the book of Hans, and somebody showed up at my door ready to kill me, I don't know that that would be my response. It may say right there, and Hans responded by freaking out, right? (laughs) I don't know about you, but that's probably what it would say about me. But he responds with prudence and discretion. The first word implies that he was cautious, not out of fear at all, but out of wisdom. It carries with it the idea of being deliberate and well thought out. Even though this is happening in the moment, we don't see Daniel's emotions get the better of him. He is deliberately cautious. The second word means to behave or speak in a way that avoids causing offense. Other translations are wisdom and counsel, wisdom and tact, discretion and discernment. He's spoken a way that avoids causing offense. So interesting, a few years ago, it was in, I was encouraged uh, to manuscript my teachings. And I remember thinking to myself, because I'd been taught Pentecostal theology, this idea that God can only work in the spontaneous. And so one of my professors said, hey, have you ever thought about manuscripting? Because you've got some really smart stuff when you think about it, but when you open your mouth just off the cuff, it really doesn't come across great. And I was really appreciative for that. And I thought to myself, well, well what about, what about you know, the Holy Spirit? And I said something to him, and he said, Hans, the Holy Spirit can work just as well on Tuesday while you're writing down the manuscript as he can on Sunday morning in the middle of it. I thought, oh, man, that's great. And so I started to manuscript my teachings and, and walk through them. And I can honestly tell you, and the elders can as well, because they get to see my manuscripts, that almost every time, I won't say 100%, because I don't know for sure, but pretty close to 100% of the time, where I say something that's a pet theology Uh, that's kind of off the wall, that's maybe offensive uh, beyond the just offense of the gospel, Uh, about 100% of the time it's because I didn't think it through and it was off the cuff. It wasn't in my manuscript. I wonder if we could take that same thinking and apply it to the way that we interact with people in our words and our social media posts and what we write. It's an interesting thing to think about. Remember here that Daniel had been exiled trained in three years of assimilation to Babylonian thought, and even then, he was still trusting in the sovereignty and power of God, so much so that he was able to stand in wisdom and confidence even when threatened with death and speak with prudence and discretion. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, if you're like me, I wish I could have that level of calm and confidence. But while Daniel may have had some innate personality and characteristic traits that added to his strengths here, the text portrays him as so trusting in God that his confidence is there rather than in himself. Friends, when we operate in this behaviorism or this moralism where we just try and make ourselves better, it's going to fail us because our emotions will take over at the worst possible moment. But when we press into the Lord and we understand his character and we know who he is and we set our theology upon it, somehow the Holy Spirit works in us a change that actually lasts. If you're a person that has some guilt around how you view the world or maybe how you've responded to it in the last year and a half, rather than beating up yourself about it and wishing you were stronger or more courageous, 
I would encourage you to seek to delve into your underlying theology and ask the questions, do I really believe this Bible that I hold in my hands? Do I really believe this? Do I really believe that God proved his sovereignty and care for humanity in the mission and work of Jesus Christ? Do I believe that that shows his benevolence and his love to the point where I can trust him no matter what goes on? Ask yourself the question, do I truly trust God to work all things together for his glory and the sanctified good of those that are his own? Or do I have this sneaking suspicion that the other shoe's going to drop at some point because he's really not trustworthy? And if the answer to any of these makes you convicted, I want you to go and work through the reason why. Sit down this week in prayer and take it before the Lord. Even take before the Lord and say, Lord, I don't trust you because of X, Y, and Z that I've seen. And let him work in you. And then go back to God's word and look for proof to bolster your understanding and confidence in God. The word will give you that. This is why we're told throughout the word to remind ourselves of all the work over the course of history that God has done. When we just sit in our myopic view of me in my 41 years or you in your 20 years or 30 years or whatever it might be, or even 70 or 80 years, when we look at our myopic view and say, in this 70 years, I just can't see it, Lord, usually that means you need to broaden your view to look at the whole of history and read through Scripture. We should emulate Daniel in this facet of his response. And the reason we know that this is normative, right? We look at his, his visions and we think, well, should I be getting visions too? Is that normative? Is that what the Bible's trying to tell me I should be doing? Well, in reality, the, this story spans 80 to 90 years of Daniel's life, and we get a, a glimpse of some of the events, but mostly he served in the miraculous mundane of his everyday life. So maybe it's not the visions. Maybe you might have a vision. That would be awesome, and the Lord would be uh, glorified in that. But that's not necessarily normative. But this action of speaking in prudence and discretion is. How do we know this? We can always go and tell what's normative and what's a command for us as New Testament believers by looking at the New Testament. But first, let me just give you one quick rem reminder of Deuteronomy. Because there's something that continues and that's connected between the Old and New Testament. In Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8, I've shown this to you a number of times, even here in Daniel. Uh, this is why the people were to follow the commands of God. Keep them and do them, the commands, Moses says, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples, meaning those who don't believe, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. In other words, acting out of the character of God, following his commands, the world will go, whoa, there's something miraculous about these people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous in all this law that I set before you today? So in the New Testament, we're told that we need to be wise in our speech and our actions in order to do this. That particularly our speech should reflect God. Remember, he's the God who speaks. He spoke the world into existence the, the, the Messiah is his very word incarnate. And so our speech is massively important. Look at Paul's call to the church at Colossae. As he says this in Colossians 4, 5 through 6, walk in wisdom toward the outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Okay, confession time. I won't make you do any Hail Marys or, you know, any repentance that way, right? But confession time. If you read this, how many of you are massively convicted by this? Absolutely. Especially in 2020 and 2021, right? He says this to Titus as the pastor, leading and modeling for the church in, in Titus 2, 7 through 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent, meaning an enemy of the cross, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Church, please forgive me when I have not modeled that correctly, because I know I haven't at times. Each of us in our own hearts to the Lord need to repent and say, Lord, help me from here on out. Have words that are full of grace, that are full of honey, if you will, to draw people to the cross. Brothers and sisters, as we move through all that the world is throwing at us, we need to all ask ourselves the question, is my speech written, posted online, and audible 
portraying the glory of God and doing so in a wise way that cannot be condemned. People may disagree with the content of what we have to say, but the question is, are we saying it in a wise way? Tremper Longman, a wonderful Old Testament commentator, awesome man of God and scholar, um, in his commentary on Daniel, he says this, Daniel responds in a way that puts the focus where it belongs, not on himself, but directly on God. This solution has been anticipated by the inability of the Babylonian wisdom teachers who said that the answer could only come from the divine realm. The fact that Daniel replied to disturbing news with prudence and discretion showed that his wisdom came from above. So the question for us is, are we doing the same as we encounter the disturbing news around us? Well, not only did he respond in prudence and discretion, but secondly, Daniel sought conversation with the one seeking to dehumanize him. Daniel sought conversation with the one seeking to dehumanize him. Now, before I get started on this section, I will freely admit to you that I may be eisegetically reading into this passage, and it could even be me superimposing my counselor instincts onto this idea. I hope it's not, and you can see if it is, and if it is, you're welcome to throw it out. But I want to see in the text here and take a look at why I think this is true, that Daniel sought conversation with one seeking to dehumanize him, and why it's important for us to do the same thing. If it is uh, just me placing it on uh, the text, then I want to beg your forgiveness and the Lord's. But let's take a look and see if it is. We as humans love to step into this idea. It would have been so easy for Daniel and his companions to vilify the king. I mean, if there's a, if there's a guy that you're going to say he's not a good guy and he's kind of demonic, it's probably going to be the guy that's got a knife to your throat, right? I mean, he could have easily vilified him. It would have been fruitless and unproductive for sure and would have still ended in their death, but it would have made sense if Daniel did that. When we as humans are confronted with ideas and opinions that are contrary to our own and that we may even see as harmful, it's within our sinful nature to demonize people and make them out to be void of respect, to dehumanize them. You'll notice that that's why people get called names, right? And talk radio and, and on you know, uh, Fox News and CNN, and you'll see people just calling each other names. They're trying to dehumanize them. In a recent Gospel Coalition article addressing the topic of abortion, Jonathan Lehman and Matthew Arbo unravel the idea that in order to cause harm to someone, even to the extent of eliminating them through murder, like killing a fetus, we must first act to dehumanize that fetus. In other words, to make our consciences okay with it, we've got to turn it not into a baby, but a fetus. And this same idea goes across when we want to fight against someone whose opinion we disagree with. And in this idea, we're justifying our actions. In so doing, they note in their article this quote, it's not just that we dehumanize others, we divinize ourselves. We would be gods. We would judge who is and who is not human we would grant ourselves power to assign life and death. Now, for Christians, as a people who prize life, we should agree with what this is saying. And at the same time, we should act in huge repentance that when we justify ourselves in dehumanizing another person because of their opinion, we have become self-justifiers. And for Reformed Christians, that should be anathema to us, the idea that we can justify ourselves. In our story of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar had, in fact, divinized himself, made himself a god and given himself all power. He had then also so relegated the wise men to slave status that it made total sense in his own mind that he would make them unhuman, that he would caused them harm for not meeting his needs or agreeing with him. Now, I would submit to you that when we, as humans, operate under stress and suffering, these same tendencies come out in all of us, myself included. We become the judge and jury of anyone and everyone, and we become the center of the universe and the source of all wisdom. All humility we have is overcome with pride. Often in relational conflict, this leads to us talking to anyone but the person with whom we find ourselves in conflict with and building alliances so that we can again self-justify, feel in the right like God himself, 
judge of our fellow sinner. We see this, unfortunately, in the church all the time. And counselors would call this relational triangulation, where rather than going to the person with whom we are in direct conflict, we go to a third or a fourth or maybe even a fifth party and try to get them to align with us against the other party. Instead of doing that here, in verse 16, Daniel goes and requests a meeting with the king. In the New Testament, we see this same thing commanded in the church. In both Ephesians 4.15 and Ephesians 4.25, just a few verses later, we are commanded to speak the truth in love to each other. And the context of this passage is when sin is in the midst of the church, when there's conflict. We're commanded to go to each other. You even see this acted out maybe in a little bit of an ungodly way with Peter and Paul. Uh, When Paul confronts Peter uh, there in Galatians 2.14, Paul says this, When I saw that Peter and the rest of the Jews' conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Can you imagine sitting at that dinner table? Awkward. Aren't these guys apostles? No, they were doing what they were supposed to. They were dealing with the conflict rather than becoming passive-aggressive, right? Now, we see examples of early believers getting into it with one another all throughout the New Testament. That's why when we say things like, I want a New Testament church, we're inviting the fact that we're dealing with conflict, not perfection. Amen? So what is so amazing about Daniel's action of requesting an audience with the king is that he didn't have to do it at all. He could have let the Chaldeans die and ran for the hills. He could have curled up into a fetal position and waited for death. Most of all, he could have responded in dehumanizing the king with the same response. He could have gone home and rather than prayed, he could have been like, do you guys believe this king? Oh my goodness. But Daniel met the dehumanization with what it didn't deserve, respect and honor. Friends, in meeting dehumanization and opinions that are against the glory of God with respect and honor rather than the same dehumanization, guess what we're proclaiming? The gospel. Because while we deserved nothing but death, Christ met us with love and honor and respect, calling us to something greater. Isn't that amazing? That just in that simple action of meeting dehumanization with respect and honor, we're imaging the gospel. And the ability to do this in the face of such horrific atrocity can only come from above. Remember the verse from James last week describing the difference in divine wisdom versus earthly wisdom. This is James 3, 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, meaning it comes from the pit of hell. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Friends, it's been my experience over the years that we Christians have a really hard time with that open to reason. Have you ever noticed that before? We love to shut down conversations before they start because we're standing on principle. We love to only read books by our tribe, by the people that we agree with. To read something else, well, you might get these crazy ideas in your head. But realize, guys, that that's not open to reason. We should be so assured of the gospel and so assured of good theology that we can step into any conversation, any book, and walk out of it with the filter of the gospel, knowing what we can get rid of and what we can keep. People who are assured in the goodness of God and good theology and the word of God should be open to reason. And this was the kind of wisdom that resulted in action that could only come from God. And this is what would drive Nebuchadnezzar's eyes, as we'll see at the end, and really the entire court of Babylon, to look toward the God of Daniel and to see his truth. Paul in Romans 12, 18 speaks of a similar thing. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. How easy is it to control other people? Is it easy? No. In fact, you can't do it. To do so is to either strive or abuse. But what we can do is we can control our living peaceably with others. And that's what the word calls us to do. Is this true of us 
as we encounter disturbing news and ideas and opinions that go against our beliefs and the truth of God's word. Well, next third, what we see in Daniel is that Daniel sought the Lord in prayer in the midst of community. Let's look again at Daniel 2, 17 and 18. And what we see there is that Daniel went home, made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven. Daniel calls for an audience of the king, realizes that this is all he can control at the moment, and goes home. But he also realizes this is not all he can do. Perhaps like many of us, he could simply say it is what it is and enter into fatalism and just let it be. But he didn't. You see, even when things seem completely out of control, possibly even impending doom at our doorstep, there is still one thing we can always do, and that is pray. We can seek the face of the one who is sovereign, still in control and omniscient over all things, so that we can bring our will and understanding under subjection to his. Remember that this is the point of prayer. Yes, there are plenty of examples of prayer moving the hand of God in Scripture, but I would say that this is quantifiably lower, to a great degree, than simply prayer that brings our hearts and minds under submission to his. It aligns our rebellious will with his own. And this is not a blind faith that begrudgingly falls in line. This is a remembrance of the goodness of God, the purpose of his plan, and the knowledge of his character. And this is why scripture again and again calls us to remembrance of God's character and action over the arc of history. And so Daniel seeks after the Lord. And notice the wording around his call to his brothers, seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that we might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. He starts where all of us naturally do. He asks and requests and petitions God. He simply is crying out, God, help. But God's answer is to align his understanding and heart under his own. You'll notice at the end, not much has changed other than God says, hey, just so you know, here's the real deal. Here's the story. Here's my will. Here's what's going to happen. And he blesses God for it. And then out of that, God does an amazing work. We know that this is what we're supposed to do as well as New Testament believers because this is normative for the New Testament. Recall some situations, for example, in Acts, okay? Acts chapter 114. The disciples had just watched Jesus ascend into heaven and had heard his great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. They're drawn uh, to Christ's mission, but at the same time, they've lost one of their own in Judas. Judas has killed himself. There's a bit of emotional whiplash going on here, a little PTSD probably. And what do they do? They go and they pray, seeking God's heart. Look at Acts 1.14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Notice that it's not half-hearted. It's not like, oh, I'll, just, I'll see if I kind of feel like praying. It is devotion to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Awesome. This is what we do as Christians when we are in situations that we can't control. There's another one in Acts 4.23 here, and I'm going to turn in my Bible so I can read it a little bit better. In Acts 4.23, we see another example of prayer in the New Testament. And this is uh, the, the disciples had undergone to this point was blatant persecution and a command to no longer proclaim the gospel. But how did they respond? Let's take a look there in 4.23. It says, when they were released from prison, because they'd been in prison for proclaiming the gospel, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Look at what they start with. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What's he talking about there? What's he saying was his plan? What just happened? The death of their Savior, the crucifixion. Man, if you can stand in the midst of the crucifixion, see the resurrection and the ascension and the pouring out, you can say, oh man, Lord, we don't understand this. I mean, their Lord had been taken from them, and yet they were able to say, we trust you. 
Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. How did they respond? They prayed, relying upon the sovereignty of God, knowing that he ultimately was the one that was in control of the direction of all that was happening. And look at how they prayed. There was no request of, get us out of here, or make this more comfortable, but simply a recalling to mind of the goodness of God to align their minds and hearts with his, and a request to have boldness in proclaiming the gospel in the midst of the chaos that was going on. The command to pray, the picture to pray in the church is found throughout the New Testament. We could spend hours on it. And so we can look at Daniel and see that prayer in times of trial and suffering is of great importance, and it's what we're to do. This next Saturday, we're excited uh, for our women's prayer night. Uh, and then on February 20th, we're going to be doing a men's prayer night where we will seek the Lord communally. And I really hope that you will take part and sign up online. RSVP for it. Be uh, devoted to it. Come to it. I think that prayer is one of the areas, corporate prayer especially, is one of the areas in which our church can grow in leaps and bounds this year. Let's be a church that makes corporate prayer, whether that be two or 200, a priority. Prayer meetings, in my experience, in the 20 or so years I've been a Christian, they're always poorly attended. And I think the reason for that is many of us as Christians don't want to admit that we just don't think prayer works. We think it's speaking up into the ether. Friends, if you truly believe the Bible and you truly believe what it calls us to do, you will make prayer in your own devotional life and corporately as a community, you will make it a priority. And so if you're not going to make it, I won't be standing there with a list checking people off, you know, hounding you down. But I really want to impress upon you, take part when we offer corporate prayer. And if you find yourself nervous about corporate prayer, I want to encourage you that the only way to move past that is to gain experience in it. Daniel and his companions sought the Lord in prayer, and we should emulate that as well when we find ourselves in the midst of chaos. Well, number four, we see that Daniel blessed the Lord in thanksgiving. Daniel blessed the Lord in thanksgiving. You can see back there in Daniel in uh, uh, verses 20 through 23 uh, that he blessed the Lord. And we looked at this a great deal last week, but rather than just noting Daniel's view of uh, sovereignty, he, we looked at how he blessed the Lord. At this point in the story, Daniel had no idea if the vision would work. He had no idea how the king would take it. He had no idea of anything, but he trusted in God's goodness and sovereignty. He trusted in God's ability to not be shocked by anything that is going on. And because of this knowledge of God, not because of the comfort or circumstances around him, he blessed God and gave thanks and praise. Can you imagine blessing God as there was a soldier standing at your door ready to kill you? This idea of giving praise to God regardless of circumstances is at the core of the DNA of the Jewish people and should be at ours as well. After all, their forefather and foremother, Abram and Sarai, especially Sarai, laughed at God's idea that he would provide offspring for them. They were too old, of course. How on earth could they have children? It's impossible. But God acted, not in earthly logic, but in divine logic. The sovereignty of God offers us the ability to both accept our circumstances and lament them at the same time. You can think of Job's response to his wife when she tells him to curse God and die. He had lost everything, including family, including his business, including all his wealth. He was covered from head to toe in painful boils. And so his wife comes to him in Job chapter 2, verse 10. And she says, curse God and die. Why are you existing on your character anymore? But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, Job learns later that this is the right mentality to have because he has no idea what's occurring in the heavenlies. By the end of this story, by the end of the book of Job, there's so much going on in the spiritual realm and, and God is at war in a sense with evil and Satan is, is working as a free agent and there's all this craziness going on. And so by the end, Job admits and says, I don't know anything. He says, I have heard of you with the ear, God, but now my eyes see you. I understand. 
This did not remove, though, the need for lament throughout the story, and we see Job lamenting painfully. Lament is a gift of God that he's given us so that in those times of suffering, while we are still praising and thanking him, we can also cry out and say, Lord, it doesn't make any sense. Lament is us praising God for his good character and just nature and admitting to him that we do not understand how the world can be so far from that character and goodness. It's us begging the Lord to make things right again in fullness and finish the work of redemption for the cosmos. We see that this idea of prayer and lament, too, is normative for followers of Christ as New Covenant believers. Think with me about the disciples, as we noted earlier, in the midst of persecution. This is also from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. They had been enslaved uh, and, and, and imprisoned for what they had done in proclaiming the gospel. The Sanhedrin had warned the apostles not to speak anymore. And here, uh, the, they're coming out of prison for what they've done. And it says, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Man, I hope the Lord can say something similar about me when I'm in suffering. Just a few chapters later, we see Paul going surely to imprisonment and possibly death. He stops at the seashore on his way to Jerusalem and meets with the elders of the Ephesian church. And look at how the story finishes. It says there in Acts 20, 36, and when he had said what he had come to say, he said all these things, Paul knelt down and prayed with them, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to his ship. In the midst of suffering, they're giving glory to God. Paul is so excited that he can take the gospel back to his people in Jerusalem but he also is lamenting that it's probably going to lead to his death. In the midst of suffering, giving glory to God, there is room for wailing and weeping and lament. The argument of the antagonist to Christianity is that if God is all-powerful and if God is all-good, then there should be no evil in the world. But friends, that puts us in the judgment seat in place of divine knowledge. God is all-powerful and God is all-good, but for some reason outside of the grasp of our tiny little human brains, he is working through the narrative arc of history to bring about the greatest good that you and I could ever experience. Perhaps it could be as simple as he is giving room for free will so that love can take place. And part of walking with Jesus in that truth is to trust even when things don't make sense. In chaos, we can trust the sovereignty of God, and so we can praise him and thank him regardless of our circumstances. Brothers and sisters, are you able to do that? If not, I want to challenge you this week to sit down and memorize the blessing of Daniel up until the last line about the vision, but the section that you can proclaim as well, I want you to memorize that and meditate on it and seek to align your knowledge of God with the truth of who he is. It's a great application point for you this week. Meditate on that, memorize it, and then proclaim it. And you can even work in what you're going through in the midst of it. Well, last but definitely not least of all, we see Daniel as a response to the sovereignty of God. This is my last point. He displayed and proclaimed the wisdom of God to the world. Daniel displayed and proclaimed the wisdom of God to the world. Daniel replied to the chaos and destruction that awaited him with prudence and discretion. He sought out a personal discussion with the one that was bringing chaos to him. He sought the Lord in community through prayer, and he blessed the Lord in thanksgiving. And in all of this, Daniel was displaying and proclaiming the wisdom of God to the world. In the first place, he was actively illustrating the character of God that shows by his obedience to God's call and command how good God is. But then by his actions, he was displaying for all to see that he trusted God's goodness and plan. He could say, as the psalmist did in Psalm 11 that we read at the, the opening of our gathering, in the Lord I take refuge. Because no matter what happens around us, the Lord is righteous. Friends, I want you to imagine yourself going with me on a hike. 
And we go to the highest possible point where it's a complete drop-off down to the bottom, and there is this bridge that we come to. And it's a bridge that looks really good, but we're not so sure because it's one of those rope bridges with the wood panels, right? You're not so sure. And uh, I look at it, and I'm, you know, close to 300 pounds, and so I kind of go, why don't you go first? <laughs> Michael, why don't you go, go right across, you know, you, you, you go ahead. Would you do it, Michael? No. no. Would anyone else do it? No. Hey, you're wise people. All right. You're in the, you're in the way of Daniel. Friends, if you go to somebody and you say, trust Jesus with your life, and you're standing at the edge of the bridge unwilling to go across, what are they going to do? They're not going to trust the Lord with their life. Part of our evangelism starts in the pre-work before we ever get to that conversation of asking the question, have I trusted my very life to the Lord? And I think in current circumstances, that is an important question for every Christian to ask. Have I entrusted even my mortality to God? Anyone watching Daniel would see that his trust is in the Lord and not in anything else. From this strength of belief and conviction and because of the Lord's good grace and giving him the true understanding of the arc of history, Daniel is able to then proclaim with clarity that God is good and that history is indeed heading to a known end where every knee will bow to the sovereignty of God. And Daniel is able to step forward to a pagan enemy king in a strange culture and say, God reigns and will reign. Pretty crazy thing to do when you have a knife against your throat. And this too, dear friends, is normative for followers of God amidst chaos. The world so badly needs to know what is going on, what is happening, and how it will all end. And while we have not been given a specific vision to a specific dream, we've each been given the truth of God's word in a miraculous way so that we might answer when questioned. You see, we each have been given the wisdom of God in the gospel, and it is just as miraculous that God has reached down into each of our hearts, into hearts that were enslaved in the burden of sin and deposited the truth of his word, the power of his spirit, and the freedom of the gospel. We can therefore agree with Paul when he says in Galatians 1, 10 through 12, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, his story on the road to Damascus, he saw a vision of Christ, and maybe that's how you were saved. Maybe it was in a vision or a dream. But for the majority of us as Christians, it probably happened when some speaker was talking or somebody in a car ride told us about Jesus. And in the miraculously mundane of everyday life, the Lord from his divine throne reached down into our sinful hearts, broke the enslavement of sin, and deposited the truth. Friends, that is just as miraculous as what Paul went through or what Daniel went through. Each of us, regardless of whether it was a vision or a dream or merely the gracious hand of God revealing himself to us, each of us has miraculously been given the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the knowledge that we were dead in sin and in need of a Savior came from heaven, not from us. The knowledge that God the Father sent his Son to proclaim the kingdom of God and die on our behalf came from God and not from us. The knowledge that he welcomed us into his kingdom, that he rose from the grave proving that he had overcome our sin and even the sin that has shifted all creation into chaos, that came from heaven, not from us. And the knowledge that he ascended into heaven and currently sits in authority over the church by the power of the Holy Spirit, promising to come again to judge the living and the dead, that came from him, not from man. Friends, we have each been entrusted, just as Daniel was entrusted with the vision to take before the king who is dehumanizing him, we've each been entrusted with the invaluable wisdom of God and the gospel. And so we need to be ready and looking for the ability to proclaim the gospel of God, even as Peter commands us in 1 Peter 3.15. And your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Notice that gentleness and respect piece again, but then also notice a reason for the hope. Notice that the person he's talking to hasn't opened their mouth. It's just that the world sees 
hope in the midst of chaos and says, hey, would you mind telling me why you're so hopeful? Are you not paying attention? Have you not seen the bumper stickers that say, if you're not mad, you're not paying attention, right? And we can say, no, I am paying attention, but guess what? I've got the inside track on some wisdom. You want to know about it? And then you can tell them not about conspiracy theories or end times conspiracy, but about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, finish the chapter with me. We'll finish up here. Go to Daniel 2, 46 through 49. It says this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Now we do not know if Nebuchadnezzar simply added the name of Yahweh to his pantheon of pagan gods or if there was a genuine awe and belief that Yahweh was the sovereign God over the spiritual realm. We can maybe aim to the former, but friends, notice two quick things with me and then we'll be done. First, notice that even though this may not have been a full conversion, it left Daniel and his companions in a place of favor with their enemies so that there might be other opportunities to proclaim the truth. Friends, the reason we speak with gentleness and respect is because we want as many opportunities as possible with the enemies of the cross to reason with them and share the gospel with them. And secondly, it left Nebuchadnezzar with the distinct impression that he needed to wrestle with this God that Daniel and his friends proclaimed. This is a truth that we'll see come up again and again as we look through Daniel, but Daniel's response made it so that the king had to pay attention to his God. And friends, this is our goal. We preach and act within the wisdom of God so that he is glorified and the gospel is proclaimed. By Daniel's example, we can glean conviction of those areas in which we might need to pursue the Lord's heart more and pursue his command to a greater degree so that we, can, we also can proclaim the wisdom of God to a broken world. We should be thankful for this example of Daniel to push us in those directions. Amen? Amen.